Okay, um, so we're, we're moving into a little bit uh, different, um, little di bit different area of the study with today's class. So the next four classes are going to be focused on applying what we learned up to this point, what we learned in 21 lessons about what the Bible teaches us about the history of the creation of the world, the creation of mankind, and who we are as human beings, and apply that to um, real life today. That's what we're going to spend the next uh, four weeks doing. Uh, a particularly... Um, particularly relevant problem to today's world, uh, something that all of us uh, know and see around us in the world, and in order to be able to understand this problem and solve this problem, we have to be able to um, not just be have read the account in Genesis 1 to 11 of who we are as human beings, but to really believe it to the point where um, we we apply it, and um, and it, it informs who we are and what we do, uh, so that people in the world see us, see the fact that we actually believe that this is who human beings are, this uh, biblical account of who we are. So um, let me just get started and tell you what we're going to learn today. So we want to find answers to the problem of racism. Racism is a problem that we face in our country today that uh, it's a particularly... Um, particularly strong and, and a problem that, that, that brings out strong emotions in people. Um, and we want to see how, if we apply to the Bible to this problem, what do we get? What answers do we get? Uh, but before we can do that, we need to figure out the nature of sin because racism is a manifestation of sin. Before we can do that, we need to know who man is, because man is doing the sinning. Before we can do that, we need to figure out who God is, because God is the creator of man. Fortunately, God has revealed himself to us in his word, the Bible. So in order to find answers for the problem of racism, we need to go to the Bible. We need to know what it says, and we need to be able to really put it into practice in our daily lives. Now... Uh, when it comes to this particular issue, there's really a clash of worldviews. There's the biblical view versus the secular view, and I want to lay them out in today's lesson. We'll just get started. Like I said, this is going to be four parts, this lesson. And um, I've actually taught a class just on the Bible and racism, and it's, it's usually 12 weeks, 12 parts. And so we're gonna, you're going to get the fire hose um, edition. The 12 parts are going to be in only four weeks. Uh, so we're going to go kind of fast. And um, and I know I won't be able to answer all your questions right away, but I hope when we've gotten through four parts uh, that I can answer most of your questions anyway. So, yes, go ahead. Are you going to take four weeks on racism, or are there four subjects? That no, four weeks on racism. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, I've, I've actually taught a 12-week course just on the Bible, and racism. Uh, so, but first we're going to review what we did last week so we can get up to 
uh, get up to the president, make sure we've got all the little nooks and crannies filled in so we're ready to start this discussion. So last time we uh, we did the Toledot of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, what came forth from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It goes all of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. And so essentially chapter 10 is sometimes referred to as the table of nations. And it follows the descendants of the three sons of Noah that came off the ark. Japheth is the first one, and his is the the least substantial uh, genealogy. The, the, we know the least about his descendants. So we only get his sons, and then grandsons from two of his many sons. Ham is a little bit more extensive. We get uh, grandsons from three of his four sons, and then we get another generation after that for several of them. And and for one particular grandson of Ham, Nimrod, we get a bunch of great-grandchildren listed there as well because many of those descendants of Ham are, uh, through Canaan, are the Canaanite tribes that the people of Israel will uh, encounter later on in the scriptures. So they're they're uh, given a little bit more detail to Ham. And then, of course, even more with Shem because Shem is the line that leads to the Messiah. We get uh, all the way down... Uh, Shem, Arphaxed, Selah, Eber, and Peleg, we get uh, uh, four generations after Shem there, uh, and then including some uh, of a fifth generation from one of Eber's sons as well. And so if you put them all on one chart, a little tiny, tiny writing, um, all the ones in um, from coming from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the red ones are their sons, and the blue are their grandsons, and uh, and so forth. In some in some cases, it goes all the way down to five generations. Uh, and of course, Peleg is mentioned there in the Bible as the it was in his day the um, the, the the world was the earth was divided, um, and he is the one that leads to Christ. It's his line through Peleg. So at the very end of chapter ten, in the summary of the table of nations, it's the very last verse says. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. And then, so we get a little bit of idea that these families separated, but we don't know well why and how did they end up being separated. That doesn't come till afterwards in chapter 11. Uh, there is some information in the Bible. There's also some extra-biblical information that allows us to uh, get a, at least some idea of where some of the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth initially went. Uh, now, uh, people spread out from there and, and intermixed, and there were conquests, and so this is not, of course, what um, a map of peoples looks like today. But this is an initial guess of where they went in the immediate aftermath of the Tower of Babel. So, uh, as an overview of what we did last time, uh, chapter 10, of course, shows... Uh, these descendants and some of the nations they became, and then uh, it doesn't explain, but chapter 11 then gives the reason for the dispersal. Um, God had ordered them to disperse, but they had ignored that command and clumped together. Um, and so we get this, um, the, we get the explanation of the state of the of people after the flood, the whole earth, uh, referring to their languages. Um, and then we get this uh, idea from uh, the Hebrew word about it came about that it was it was some time after. So uh, it, it certainly took some time to have four or five generations of people be born. So we're talking about decades, many decades after the flood before the the Tower of Babel. 
Um, and so they moved to the east, but they moved to the east together. Uh, they moved from wherever the mountains of Ararat are, maybe eastern Turkey, maybe a little bit east of that, but they moved to the eastern part of Mesopotamia, uh, the plain of Shinar. Um, they, there was stone, uh, there was um, clay available, not stone, so they made bricks. Uh, they made bricks and made a, a, a city and a tower, we learned. Uh, the rebellion, this, so this is rebellion against God, and the Bible makes that really clear that the purpose for building the city and the tower was so that they wouldn't be spread out. God had ordered them to spread out. They deliberately built this city and built this tower so that they wouldn't have to spread out. So in order to, in order to defy and disobey God, that's why they built the tower. That's what the Bible tells us. Um, so there was probably a fairly large uh, population, somewhere around 3,000 people, uh, by the time of the Tower of Babel, if we, if we do some sort of a statistical analysis about how many children they were having and how many generations had passed, about 3,000 people, enough to have a city, a small city, and enough to build a big tower. Um, the narrative, of course, describes God having to, their, their idea was to build a tower all the way up to heaven, but it requires, it's an anthropomorphic language, but uh, the Bible describes God as going down, still having to go down to see this uh, wonderful tower that they had built. Um, and so God then has this little conversation among the Trinity. Um, they are one people in one language. God describes the situation. And then he says, this is just the beginning. No sin will be impossible for them. Um, then... So he, he goes down then to this tower and he decides that he's going to um, force people to spread out. And of course, this is what's best for them. Um, the, if they had clubbed together, stayed with language, uh, they would have gone on sinning and sinning and sinning. They, they, uh, as they clumped together and as they talk to each other about building this tower, what are they doing? They're, they're deciding to deliberately disobey God. Um, that is not good for them, and God takes matters into his own, own hands and forces them to separate. separate. They're scattered over the whole earth. Uh, now, one of the things that we see here, of course, is the, um, the, the um, beginning of language. But there are other, some other implications. The people had clumped together, the animals had spread out, and so uh, when people actually and then did spread out, once the languages were... Uh, confused and God scattered them, uh, they were moving into land that already had animals. Um, and so then we get uh, these various groups of people spreading out uh, into kind of an empty world, but it's already got uh, animals in it. Um, and so this is the beginning of languages. Um, and we have um, real good evidence of groups of languages today but to, to the frustration of secular uh, people that study languages, they can't make them all go back to a, one common language. They can only make them go back to a certain number of groups of families of languages, um, which is what we would expect from the biblical narrative. We would expect that there would be language groups, but we would expect that you can't make them all go back to a, one common language because God created these separate languages that were unintelligible to one, one another all at one time. And so when we trace languages back, we, we end up going back to 
a set of languages, but we can go back to just one, which is what secularists were expecting. Yeah, go ahead. So what they say is that it arose in different places uh, at the same time. And they use that um, kind of miraculous simultaneous arri- uh, arrival for many things in, um, in physical evolution as well. Uh, because um, you've got different um, animal groups from different um, different tr- trees of the supposed the branches of the supposed ev- evolutional tree that, that evolved the same things, like eyes, for example. Eyes are in different groups of uh, animals um, that are not closely evolutionary related to one another, but they have eyes. So they say that um, eyes arose simultaneously in different places. And so they say the same thing with languages, that it just happened to arise in different little groups of people uh, independently of one another. That's why we don't have, um, we can't trace it back to a single language. That's what they say. Okay, so um, we have different families of languages that are similar. So we have, for example, Romance languages that are, like French, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, that are similar to one another, and you can see similarities across them. There are Germanic languages that you can see similarities across the languages. There are Slavonic languages, Uralic languages, Semitic languages, and so forth, many different kinds of languages. And sometimes you can group some of the um, those languages into a little bit higher groupings, but you can never get it down to where they all... Uh, converge, if you go back, uh, you can't make them converge into a single language. Uh, so that, and that fits what we would expect from the story we get from the Tower of Babel. And so I put this chart up, uh, you, you know, if you, if you look at the the words, can you see that? You can't see it. It's way too small and way too light. Uh, but you can trace across uh, languages that are from a similar group, the, the, some of the words look similar. And you can see that, oh, that probably came from the same thing. But then there are the other language groups, the same, um, the same word has a completely different sound. It's not similar at all. Uh, it's similar to other languages within that group, but it's completely dissimilar to other language groups. Um, yeah, so... Uh, that's that's uh, uh, that's languages. So we get this spreading out from the Tower of Babel. We've got these people groups that are uh, divided by language. So that's the, the the divider that God used was language. Um, and so you can just imagine, just put yourself back, try to think back, and put yourself in. The, everybody's always spoken the same language, and you're building this city and building this tower, and everybody can. Under, and you wake up one morning. And the other, and the person that you were working with, the guy that you were, you know, hammering and sawing with right next to him the, the day before yesterday, well, today he's speaking gibberish, um, and he thinks you're speaking gibberish. Um, now that would really freak you out, right? If that had never happened before, all of a sudden the guy's, you know, babbling away and you can't understand what he's saying. That's what happened, and they ran away from each other in groups that could actually understand each other. Yeah. <clears throat> Verse 8 and 9, it says that God scattered them. Yes, he did. He scattered them by by confusing their languages. So it tells us that the way he scattered them was by confusing their language. Well, yeah. you know, Philip got scattered over to meet an Ethiopian eunuch. Um, and, you know, he's taken up and boom, laid down someplace else. It could be, too, 
Yeah, uh, but you have to be careful because uh, this is in Hebrew, that's in Greek. Um, and so if we're, t- and, and we're translating the same word into scattered, but it's not the same word in the original languages. One's Hebrew and one's Greek. Um, so yeah. the preferred answer is, this just happened because nobody could talk to one another. Right, it freaked them out. All of a sudden they couldn't talk to each other. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and it could be that God um, caused them to be freaked out and caused them, that, that caused them to scatter, and cause, God, that God caused them to um, take that action because of the language confusion. Uh, but yeah, but that's the, the reason given in the Bible for the reason why they scattered is because God confused their languages. Um, and so we've learned about uh, creation all the way up to the Tower of Babel, and I want to apply that to an issue. In, in today's world, to show you that it's not just words on a page, it's not just um, things that useless knowledge. It's not useless knowledge. It's something that, uh, if we think this way, we will be able to understand problems in the world today and apply biblical solutions to problems in the world today. And so that we're going to do four parts on this. Um, so essentially, we have in our culture two major worldviews now. Um, there are some others, um, and we could, we can talk about the others, but I want to talk about essentially the two major worldviews, the ones that are in direct conflict with one another that cause the greatest tension uh, in our culture today. And that's uh, the worldview of a biblical worldview on one side and a secular worldview on the other. So a biblical worldview uh, starts with the natural world created by God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. That's where we start from a biblical worldview. Uh, And because God is the creator, he therefore has authority over his creation, uh, including mankind as as a creature of his, a creation of his. And so he and he alone has the, uh, the authority to make rules for how we ought to behave. Uh, what are, what's right and wrong. An absolute standard of morality, God as creator has the authority to do that. And others do not because they're not our creator. Uh, men and women created in God's image. We talked about this. Um, and therefore, above all other living things in value. Uh, and we have an immortal soul. Because we are created in the image of God, we have people have, everybody that you encounter uh, has uh, value, high value. Um, However, we also learn that all people are sinful and in rebellion against God, their creator. And people can only be saved, perfected, redeemed by a gracious act of God, their creator. Uh, So this is the biblical worldview that we've learned from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11. Uh, There's a perfect creation, and that perfect creation is fallen because of man's sin. Sin brought with it death, disease, pain, suffering, guilt, shame. Uh, But God had a plan already in place. He started to reveal it in Genesis 3.15, a plan of redemption, to redeem uh, his creation, especially his, his creation of man, from the results of sin. The other worldview, uh, kind of a secular humanist worldview, 
the natural world came into existence by itself for no reason and with no cause. So there can be no ultimate source of right and wrong. There's no authority there. There's no ultimate authority there. Men and women are the product of evolution, like all other living things. Most recently from ape-like ancestors, and therefore have no special value. When they die, that is the end of them. People are basically good, but can be more or less perfected by the right external circumstances. This is the dominant view of the world in our culture today. People are basically good, but their circumstances can cause them to go the wrong direction or go the right direction, their external circumstances. And so the secular timeline of the world, Big Bang, 14.5 billion years ago, and then suns and stars start to form, and uh, you get type 1 stars, type 2 stars, type 3 stars, heavier elements, uh, billions of years, billions of years, billions of years. Uh, later on, there's an accretion disk that forms our solar system, Earth, Moon, um, Eventually, the planet cools about 4.5 billion years ago, cools enough to have dry land and seas. You get the first cells arising uh, in the primordial soup, in the, either in the deep ocean in a warm vent or on land in the primordial soup. Then you get fish and plants and sharks and amphibians and insects and reptiles and mammals and whales and birds and uh, primates and then human beings. Um, and there are millions and millions of years of death all that before people ever arrive on the scene. That's the secular timeline of history. So there's a clash of worldviews. Do we see the world through the lens of God's word and biblical history from Genesis 1 to 11, or do we see the world from man's, through the, the, the lens of man's theories and a secular view of the history of the world? Uh, depending on what lens you look through, you will see the world in an entirely different way. And there are profound consequences to how, which lens you look through. Uh, Worldviews have consequences, including for the issue that we're going to talk about here of racism. Um, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the consequences of a biblical worldview, the consequences of reading Genesis 1 to 11 and saying that's how we got here, that's how we came to be who we are as a human race. Uh, Everyone who walks the earth is a descendant of Adam and Eve, and more recently, of course, the family of Noah. So we are all members of one family. There are no such thing as races of people. Every person is of infinite value from conception to natural death because each one is created in the image of God. For that reason, people should be treated with dignity and respect. We have a reason, uh, a compelling reason why people should be treated with dignity and respect because they are created in the image of God. Racism, a particular manifestation of the sin of partiality, is an act of rebellion against God and his created order. The solution is repentance, followed by obedience to God, something only possible in Christ. So if we want to solve the problem of racism, we need to go make disciples, because there's unity in Christ. Um, So Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden 
um, that's where we came from. Adam, all of us, every single one of us, descendant from two people, Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, a whole world. So if you look around this room, every single person descended from Adam and Eve. Look around the room again, every single person descended from the three sons of Noah who came off the ark. A close family we are. Um, so what about the secular humanist worldview? Uh, people evolved from ape-like ancestors. And there is no reason why each group would necessarily evolve at the same rate. This is where the problem starts to come in. There's no reason in evolutionary theory, in fact, it would be extremely surprising if groups of animals evolved the same all over the entire world, um, including the people animals. Uh, therefore, from inside this secular humanist worldview, it is logical to assume that one group of people could be more evolved than another group of people. Since there can be no absolute standard of right and wrong, there can be no moral reason from inside the secular humanist worldview why the lighter shade accidents of evolution should not mistreat or even own the darker shade accidents of evolution or vice versa. So from within the secular humanist worldview, they don't have a reason why people should all be treated with dignity and respect. Um, and this, this has consequences. Uh, so survival of the fittest, might makes right, means that the only solution within their worldview, within the secular humanist world, worldview, is a struggle for power over others. Whoever gains the upper hand imposes his will on others. This is the logical outworking of the secular humanist worldview. And so there's no hope for unity within that worldview. Um, it's, it's from goo to you by way of the zoo. Uh, yes? People evolved from ape-like ancestors. Yep. There's no reason why each group should be treated differently. Mm -hmm. Because there's no reason why each group should be treated differently. Because there's no reason why each group should be treated differently. Because there's no reason why each group should be treated differently. And maybe it's up to eight now, I don't know. Uh, but so those people from all over the whole globe have ancestors that go back, you know, hundreds of years. But within the evolutionary story, um, those ancestors go back hundreds of thousands or even, I don't know, I don't know how far back the, the current story is, but it's at least hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and so... Within the evolutionary story, you've got hundreds of thousands of years of evolution of population groups that have been separated all around the world. And from in the evolutionary story, why, why would every single one of these groups evolve exactly the same amount? Uh, right, because we're talking about evolution is always onward and upwards. Uh, you know, the survival of the fittest and the natural selection, you only get the best going uh, onward and upward. But that, this, that never occurred, the, the circumstances are never exactly the same everywhere. Uh, and so natural selection in different places gives, you, uh, gives rise to variations. So within the evolutionary story, all these people groups over hundreds of thousands of years, it, it, it's, it's, it would be illogical to assume that they had arisen to exactly the same height of evolution everywhere, around every people group around the whole world. So within the evolutionary story, it makes perfect sense to think of one group as less evolved than another group. 
And that has consequences. Yeah, that's what I'm going to show. Well, that's what I'm going to show. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're going to talk about that, that, that these kind of worldviews have consequences, real-life consequences that are awful. Yeah, go ahead. I don't know, Ron, if you're going to mention it, but uh, Darwin's book, everybody refers to it as the origin of the species. But the whole title of that book is On the Origin of the Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Yeah, so uh, we will talk about it. Uh, however, in Origin of Species, Darwin deliberately left out people. He only talked about animals. He actually wrote a whole separate book, which we'll talk about, called The Descent of Man. A separate book, a whole separate book just about the evolution of people. And I'll show you a bunch of quotes from that book. It's horrific, just horrific. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so Darwin, he knew if he tried to put people in Origin of Species, it would be rejected. So he did not put people in the origin of species, only animals. He wrote the second book. Once his, once his theory caught on and everybody said, oh, yeah, this is great, he wrote a second book called Descent of Man. And I'll show you some quotes from that here in a minute. But, yeah, this is, this is where I'm going, that these ideas have consequences. If people actually believe that, that we evolved from apes and over hundreds of thousands of years and all over, all over different parts of the world then, of course, it's going to be logical that different people evolve to different levels. Uh, uh, Robbie first, and then in the back. Go ahead, Robbie. What century was Darwin? Uh, 1859, he wrote Origin of Species. 1859, yeah. Yes? I was going to add to that, um, that I was reading um, somewhere where the Germans also used... Including Adolf Hitler believed in evolution, and he thought that um, the Jewish population was inferior. Yeah. Thus, he wanted to put them in. Yeah, that's lesson two. Yeah. We'll get that that next week. That's your way ahead. So that's good. That's good. So uh, what I'll show you though is that Hitler used American eugenic ideas. Eugenics came up here before it came up in Germany. I'll show you that. Um, to much to our shame, um, but yes, Hitler. Hitler's two heroes were Nietzsche and Darwin, and so Mein Kampf, Mein Kampf uh, Hitler's book, uh, quotes extensively from Darwin's evolutionary theory and Nietzsche's. Nietzsche's uh, idea of the Ubermensch—that was Nietzsche, the Superman, the Overman—and and Hitler latched onto that and said, "That's us. We're the Superman. We're the Ubermensch." Everybody else is down here. And he lets on to Darwin, too. And it's very interesting that um, if you look at Mein Kampf, a translation in English, uh, so in German, he uses the word for evolution over and over again in German. Um, and in English translations, it just says change instead of evolution. Um, but, but he was talking about Darwin's evolution. That's what he was talking about. You can't see that in the English translation of Mein Kampf. Because for whatever reason, they didn't use the word evolution in there, in the English translation of Mein Kampf. But that's what Hitler was latched on to. He was latched on to evolution. He was going to help evolution out. He was going to get rid of the less evolved and the more evolved, to, which to Hitler was the Aryan race, was going to take over the world and be the ubermensch. Nietzsche's Ubermensch. Okay, yeah, we'll get there. We'll talk about Hitler and eugenics and all that. We'll talk about that next week. Yeah. Uh, this makes, this is 
crystal clear. And the, the thing that I guess as I'm thinking this through and comparing it to the people that I know is I'm like, this is crystal clear and people's worldviews are a soup of mishmash of these ideas kind of put in a blender yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. whatever they pick and choose yeah. out of these worldviews is theirs. They're not logical. Yeah. So yes, that, that does happen. People's worldviews are complex and when you're talking to an individual person, you need to drill down, have a relationship to the point where you can understand what he actually believes and thinks. But one of the things that you need to do, I think, as uh, when you're doing apologetics, is show them where the secular worldview leads. Show them this is where it leads. Uh, this is where it has led in the past, and this is where it's the logical working out of that secular worldview is awful. You need to be able to show them that. Because, you know, 99% of people that, that have a secular worldview say, will say, oh, no, no, I don't believe that. And that's true. That's true. They don't. They don't. So 99% of people that believe in evolution do not, they're not racist. Or they're not overt racist. But they're, the, the foundation of their view of the world leads to this. This is where it goes. And they need to be shown that, that this is where it goes. Yes? And I guess, Rob, just because you had put it on the point before, non-biblical creationist human views don't solve the problem either. That's right. Right? So, like, yeah, yeah. Islam, creationist, yeah, yeah. Yes. does not solve the problem. That's right. Yeah. So it's Christ's Correct. Right. That's right. And so we'll always keep. It's good to always keep that in mind as an over over all of this discussion is that people without Christ are blind and dead. They're dead in their trespasses. That's how the Bible describes it. All of us, we were dead in our trespasses, and in 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 the election and calling and. Um, and salvation of a human person, there is a step of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. We're made from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And so if that hasn't happened, then you can't come to the real solution of the problem. Uh, the, the real solution of the problem is Christ. Uh, but what I want to show is that the, the secular worldview almost inevitably leads to things like this. Um, so the whole the, the story essentially is from goo to you by way of the zoo, um, and so uh, there's a there's a book. Um, oh, I've got the book over here. Let me. Uh, this is uh, Dr. A. Charles Ware, uh, and he he wrote this book with along with Ken Ham called One Race One Blood. It's an excellent book, and there's a whole there's a video series and a and a small group curriculum that I've been through. Um, I would highly recommend that book, but I'll, I'll show you a couple of quotes from that book. So this is Dr. Charles Ware from this book. At the central core of racism, we find the sinful hearts of men living in a fallen world. This fundamental problem has no earthly cure. And that's the point that Daniel was just making. There's no earthly cure to the sinful heart of man. So the sinful heart of man manifests itself in many different ways, and one of the ways it manifests itself is in racism. And the ultimate cure is a heavenly cure, a salvation in, in Christ Jesus. And so another quote from the same book, uh, this one's from Ken Ham, the other author. If you want to solve the issue of racism in your life, it's very simple. You've got to believe the Bible, its account of the history of mankind and the problem humans have, and the solution to this problem. 
That's the bottom line. You can spend millions of dollars trying to solve racist problems. You can pass new laws and institutes all sorts of programs. But unless people believe God's word in regard to history and salvation, unless our minds are renewed, we will never have the full picture of reality, and we won't have the foundation that we need to make decisions that line up with the truth rather than the lie. And so this... Uh, as Daniel points out, if a Muslim believes in creation, that's not going to help him. That's not going to get to this, the foundation of the, of the problem. The foundation of the problem is, uh, the solution of the problem is founded only in Christ, and they don't have Christ, so they're not going to come to what's really necessary to solve this problem. Uh, so our thinking in every, wor- every area, of course, is uh, standing on God's word. Uh, and including in this area, as, as I'll, I'll show. So uh, just as a, a quick review of things that we've, we've gone on over the last 21 weeks. So who is this God? He's eternal. So in the beginning, God. That means he was there before the beginning in order to be there at the beginning to create. He created time, space, matter, and energy at the very beginning. He's one, one God and three persons. He's distinct from his creation. He's not part of creation. He's not time, space, matter, and he's not trapped within time, space, matter, and energy. He's powerful, all-powerful. He's personal. Person, he's got a personality. This is different from, um, for example, Allah. The concept in Islam of Allah is not really, he's not really a personal God. If you told a Muslim he was supposed to have a personal relationship with Allah, he would look at you like you were crazy. That's not what they do. That's not how they think of Allah. Um, who is, who is man? Who are we as people? We're a creature created by God to have a relationship with God, created in God's image. So we are similar to God in some ways, although we're still different. There are communicable attributes and non-communicable attributes of God. We're created male and female. This has implications and uh, it, it seems unfathomable, but people even will question this now, whether God actually created male and female or other categories. Um, so in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, we had shalom or peace, harmony with God, harmony with each other, harmony with creation. Then the sin cycle starts in Genesis chapter 3. We have the fall of man, Adam and Eve. We have Cain and Abel. We have the flood, which we talked about. And now we have the Tower of Babel, this cycle of sin that goes on and on and on and on. What's the nature of the sin? The nature of sin is autonomy, making oneself the source of right and wrong, good and bad, true and false. Satan did this. He wanted to make himself autonomous from God. Satan went to the garden and uh, deceived Eve, and Adam and Eve wanted to be their own source of right and wrong. They wanted to understand and have this knowledge of good and evil inside themselves, not, uh, not just uh, trust and, and rely on God. And it's also a covenant rebellion refusing allegiance to the rightful king. So that's the nature of sin, the nature of our rebellion. What are the consequences of sin? So sin brings with it some consequences. Uh, First, we're alienated from God. Uh, We have a damaged relationship not just with God but with each other. Um, Also, it brought with it death and also pain and suffering and guilt and shame. We also have the non-human creation was also cursed. Not just Adam and Eve, but also the creation itself was cursed. Uh, And the creational task was burdened. In other words, by the sweat of your brow, you'll 
uh, be able to bring forth food. Now they were bringing, they were, they were going to be bringing forth food anyway, but now it's going to be by the sweat of your brow. It's going to be burdened, more difficult. So that's kind of the summary of what we got up to here. But what does the Bible teach specifically about the history and nature of mankind? So this will be a review because we've gone through all of this over 21 weeks. But what the Bible teaches, and so we want to take what the Bible teaches of the true history and nature of mankind, and we want to live and act as if that's actually true in, in our daily lives. So men and women created in the image of God, and therefore each human life is of infinite value from conception to natural death. Genesis 1, Psalm 139, Scripture references. Um, Adam was created directly from inanimate matter, from dust. He was created, not as a result of an evolutionary process from animals. That's what the Bible teaches. It teaches that Adam was a direct creation from dust, not as an evolutionary process from animals. The animals uh, were created separately, uh, and Eve was made from Adam. Uh, that's what Genesis chapter 2 tells us. So Adam and Eve, along with the entire creation, were originally very good. In uh, Genesis 1.31, God looks at his entire creation and says it's very good. So a perfect God says that what he's made is very good. But then they sinned by rebelling against God, which brought the curse of death, disease, pain, and suffering, not only to them, but to all of their descendants, that's us, and to all of creation. Uh, we see that in Genesis chapter 3, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see that in Romans chapter 5, we see that in Romans chapter 8. So um, this foundation that we get in Genesis 1 through 11 um, is referred to over and over again in the rest of the Bible as well. That uh, this is the story of mankind. So... As I mentioned before, but it's important to say it again and again, as enough many times as it takes, everyone alive today and all people who have ever walked the earth are descended from Adam and Eve, and therefore we are all relatives of one family and members of one race. Uh, specifically, Acts 17, verse 26 mentions this, uh, that from one blood he made all the nations of men. So not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well, and so... This has implications about how we live our lives and how we interact with other people in our lives, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family members, our, uh, all the unbelieving people in our family. And in addition to our family here in the church, we, we have all these other people that we interact with. Um, are we interacting with all those people in our lives as if this is true? As if, do we really see people for who they are? People, every single person created in the, uh, in the image of God and therefore of uh, infinite value. So um, do, do we really think that way when we see that person that we don't like? Uh, when we see the, when, when we interact with an annoying boss, uh, do we really see it that way? Do we really see it that way when we see somebody that's really uh, downtrodden, when we see the homeless person that we walk past? Do we think about this, that person created in the image of God? Do, do, is that what immediately leaps to your mind? So have you absorbed this biblical truth into the core of your being so that it really affects who you are and how you behave? Uh, 
Um, so this is the key. This is the key to really having a biblical worldview, not only just to read these words, but to have these wor- words, God's words, absorbed into the core of your being such that the essentially the, the love of Christ overflows in you for those of us that are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. So it's, but it's both. See, it's both. Um, it's both. And, um, and it's appropriate to think about it both ways. Uh, yes, it is. It is because uh, we'll talk later on about how the New Testament describes our relationship to one another in, in Christ. And there's an additional thing here. So uh, there is the, the doctrine of adoption. So the Bible describes those of us who are in Christ are adopted into God's family. Those who are in Christ are given the privilege of being called sons of and daughters of God. And so you are adopted, and she's adopted, and he's adopted. And so you're adopted children in God's family. So that's an additional family that you belong to if you're in Christ Jesus. That's, that's another thing, another closeness that we have. And, 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 and the Bible describes that closeness uh, by saying... In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so what what the Bible is teaching is that even above and beyond any sort of other human connection, this connection that we have in Christ because we are adopted into the family of God is is a special bond that's even above those other bonds. So yes, you still say... Please continue to say sister in Christ, because that's important. Uh, Because when we talk about somebody, so uh, when you're adopted by the king, what what do we say, what do we call, what's our uh, word for somebody that is a son or daughter of a king? A prince or princess, right? And so every, every person who's adopted by the king, become part of his family, is a prince or a princess. Something really special. Uh, yes, so that's important. Thank you. Yeah. A- any other questions before we keep rolling? Yes, go ahead. Um, yeah. So yeah. So God does extend common grace to all the people that are um, created in His image, which is everybody. Right. Um, you know, He causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the the righteous and the unrighteous. He's provided things like government to restrain evil. Um, all sorts of things that he's given that that are uh, s- uh, signs of his uh, mercy, even to those who reject him, um, until a time. I mean, a time will come when there's there's no longer any uh, any of that, any mercy. Uh, but the uh, when we we need to keep two things in mind. One is there. Yes, there is common grace, and and yes, there is forgiveness of sins, but. Uh, God is also a just God. He's, he's always merciful, but he's also always just. And so sin is always punished, eventually. Sometimes it's punished right away. Sometimes it's delayed, but sin is, is going to be punished. So the, the wrath of God is poured out from heaven against all unrighteousness. And so it, it, eventually the wrath of God will be poured out for all unrighteousness, um, and it will be poured out either on me or it will be poured out on Christ uh, for my particular sins. Um, but... We see the consequences of sin in our uh, day-to-day lives. We see the consequences of sin. And that's one of the things we're going to be talking about here. 
consequences of sin. It has real life consequences. Um, when people treat others with, without dignity and respect, with uh, partiality, with racism, that has an effect right here now. And it's not just an uh, intellectual or philosophical argument. It has a real effect on people's lives. And so do all other sins. Um, I mean, the obvious one is murder. If you murder someone, that person's dead. That's a, that's a consequence. The person's dead. Um, but other sins have other consequences, but they always have, have consequences. So uh, God is merciful, and, and he gives uh, uh, common grace, but he's also just, and so sin is punished. Sometimes in this life, sometimes in the next. Yes. Yeah, so, so if I could sum up the two major worldviews, biblical and secular. From a biblical worldview, people have infinite worth but they are inherently evil. In a secular worldview, people have no worth, but they're inherently good. That's, that's essentially what the two worldviews say at, at their foundation. Um, the, the Bible says we're created in the image of God, therefore we have worth. However, we're fallen, we're all, we all fall in Adam, uh, so we're, we all have a fallen human nature, and our our tendency is to do evil, to rebel against God. That's the biblical worldview. The secular worldview says everybody's essentially born good, uh, and, and, it, and it's their, their life experiences that send them one way or another way, but they're just evolved animals, and so therefore they don't necessarily have intrinsic worth just in, because of who they are. So that's the two worldviews that are just in total class. Yeah. I was just going to say the rise of the evolutionary theory in America, anyway, what I'm familiar with, has given way to the lack of sanctity of life, be it the unborn or people who are walking around on the earth. There's no um, value put to life anymore, and that's why. Seems like people treat each other like animals. Violence is on the rise. Abortion yep. Yep. became real big because of the evolutionary theory that spread in our school system in yep. America. And it's, it's yeah, I'm going to show you some examples of that. Um, I, I mean, we don't have. I'll show you some examples today. I'll show you more examples later. Where this goes, what? what so I'll show you some real life hard examples of what the results are of this. So uh, let me just continue, though. So people are characterized by rebellion against God and all have engaged in wicked, sinful behavior, as uh, Juno was just saying. Because of the wickedness of mankind, God decided to destroy the world with a global flood and reduce the Earth's population down to eight people. God commanded Noah and his people to spread out, but they rebelled against God and clumped together until the uh, confusion of their languages at the Tower of Babel. Everyone alive today is descended from Noah's family. So we talked about that. So um, the unity of mankind is important. Uh, the fact that we're all one family. We share a common human nature, Romans chapter 5. We share a common human need, Romans chapter 3. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. The gospel is the message for all human nations, Matthew ch chapter 28, going to all the world. We've got to preach this gospel to the whole world, so it's the, the gospel is for everyone. This is the, the con continuous theme of the Bible is that there is a unity of mankind, a unity in Adam, um, and a unity in the fact that we all need the gospel 
salvation by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and so, and there's one more uh, area where this is reflected in the Bible. Um, so there's a, it's a fact. Uh, we can, we'll talk more biology in, in some later classes, but uh, each human has more in common genetically, physically, emotionally, spiritually with the human that is most different from him as he has with any creature of any other species. This is why Adam found no suitable helper among all the other creatures God had made in Genesis chapter 2. So, um, this unity of humanity, this is the concept that I want to make sure that everybody has coming out of today's class. Uh, There were only two people at the beginning, Adam and Eve. They were both very good and made in the image of God. They rebelled and sinned against their Creator. The Bible teaches that all humanity comes from Adam and Eve, and therefore we are all one race, one blood. Since we are descendants of Adam and Eve, we are all fallen in need of salvation, and then God sent Jesus to deliver us from death, sin, and Satan. Through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we can be reconciled to God. And so this is the story of the Bible, the foundation of which is in Genesis 1-11. to So what do secularists say about man? Here's a quote from Washingtonian Magazine. So Washingtonian Magazine is still published today uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. And in 1986, there was an article with a quote from Ingrid Newkirk, a famous uh, secularist feminist. And her quote was, a rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. They're all animals. Um, And that is the unvarnished... um, outworking of the secular worldview. Most people don't say that out loud. This particular lady said it out loud. This is, <laughs> this is the, the conclusion, the, the kind of the inevitable conclusion, if you really believe, if you really believe in this theory of evolution, that, that everybody's, everything has just evolved by chance, by, by time and chance over time, you get pigs and dogs and rats and boys, um, there can't be, um, where is the basis for uh, inherent worth, uh, a a differentiation of inherent worth between them? And so that's what this this atheist lady is saying um, out loud. Most, Most don't say it out loud. She said it out loud in print in a in a magazine. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy, they're all just animals. Um, that's where you get. So what about mankind, evolution of man over millions of years? Everybody's seen this drawing in a textbook sometime in their lives. Um, what are the consequences if you actually believe this, that people are just anim- uh, animals um, that, have, that have evolved over time? So, um, there is, uh, does everybody remember a man named Stephen Jay Gould? He was a Harvard professor, one of the most famous evolutionists of his day. He's, he's passed away now, 2002 he died. Uh, but he was one of the most famous evolutionists. Um, but he abhorred racism, and he said, biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. So this is an atheist, evolutionist, who's saying this is where evolution leads. Um, you get what's sometimes referred to as scientific racism. Um, and I'll show you some outworkings of that. 
this is the quote from Stephen J. Gold. It's from his book. He wrote a book called Ontology and Phylogeny, uh, Harvard Press, 1977. And he said this, that, uh, yeah, this is, where, this is where it leads. This is where belief in um, evolution of man from animals leads. Uh, it leads to massive increases of racism. So, um, uh, at, earlier in the class, uh, Pastor Allen brought up uh, Darwin's book. So, Darwin's famous book is On the Origin of Species, which he published in 1859. And as I mentioned, he deliberately left people out of that because he didn't, he didn't want the firestorm that that would start. But once his theory really caught on, he wrote a second book. And the second book was called The Descent of Man, where he very specifically talked about man in this context of his evolutionary theory. Um, and there are some unbelievable quotes in that book. Um, so uh, I'll show you. This is from uh, page 178 of The Descent of Man, um, published in 1874. Uh, At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. Um, and then the break between man and his nearest allies, he's talking about the break between mankind and apes, will be wider. Instead of as now between the Negro or Australian and the gorilla. We'll see what he's saying here. He's saying that right now, on their evolutionary scale, you've got uh, the civilized races up here, you've got the less civilized races down here, and then you've got the gorillas. And right now, those less civilized races are really close to the gorilla. But if we can exterminate them, the less civilized race, then there'll be a big white gap between uh, the evolution of people and the gorillas. This is science. Science, remember. Not his opinion or philosophy. This is science. And so if you deny this, you're a science denier. Nobody wants to be a science denier, right? This is the science. This is what the science says. So you can't go against this. This is the science. Uh, he said similar things about women in this, in this same book. The same book, he says, the chief distinction between the intellectual powers of the two sexes is shown by man's attaining to a higher eminence in whatever he takes up than can women. Uh, the average of mental power in man must be above that of woman. In this same book, science. Right. Okay. Uh, yes, I saw some questions. Margaret, you had a, a hand up. Going back two slides, please. Yep. What does anthropomorphous ape mean? So, uh, uh, a ape that looks sort of like a person. As he's saying, human beings are like. So yeah. So he's he's talking about the fact that you he can he you, that drawing that you see with a. With a monkey and then a more upright ape and then a person that's hunched over and then a person that... He's, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about a line of uh, evolutionary ascent from ape-like creatures up to humans. You, you call this... You were calling it science, but it's not really the true definition of science. Yeah. The true definition of science is something that can be observed. Right. But and this is just a theory. This yes. is an evolutionary theory. Yeah, so, but, but it's accepted as science. Yes, yeah, yeah. in our world today it is. Yeah. But it's not. It's not. Yeah. It doesn't go yeah. by the definition. So of uh, I want to show you where this comes. So this, we'll close on this. But So um, I've got a quote here from a textbook. This is a biology textbook in the United States of America. Biology textbook, 
United States of America. Hunter's Civic Biology. Biology textbook, United States of America, American High, high School. There exist upon the earth five races. Ethiopian or Negro type, Malay or Brown race, American Indian, Mongolian and Yellow race, and finally, the highest type of all, the Caucasians. That's in the science book. The science book in science class. So that's 1925. 1925. And that's the science book that was at the center of the Scopes trial. That was the science book that the ACLU says should be taught and that Christians said, no, we don't think that should be taught in science class to our kids. Uh, and Christians were ridiculed, viciously ridiculed, for opposing this. Um, and, you know, the, the true story of the Scopes trial is very interesting. The, the story that most people believe is, is not true. Um, but the Scopes trial was over this biology book, this biology book that said that in science class. So just imagine, though, the effect on generations of kids that have been taught in science class that there is a layering of races, that there's a, a Caucasian race up here and there's these other races down here in science class. Because if it's science class, you're a science denier if you, if you go against this. Nobody wants to be a science denier. Uh, yeah. But, but this is, I mean, right around, this is 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. like, this is not in the science book now. No, I'm it's not. not. I'm it's not, not saying that the science book has it right. But right. You yeah. know what I mean? That, like, this is a moment in time in yeah. this country. Yeah, but, so, but, but I want you to think. I want you to think about the things that people are telling you today are the science... And if you don't believe them, you're a science denier and you're a terrible person. And, and where, where it's been in the past, and where it's always been in the past, quite frankly. Go back, uh, go back to Galileo. Um, the, uh, the science before Galileo was that the Earth was the center of the universe. Going back to um, um, it, 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 the church was completely tangential to this argument. It was the... the the, the secular scientists believed that the earth was the center. Here comes a guy that says, no, that, he doesn't think that's true. He challenges the, the scientific consensus. The scientists of the time decided to pick up the biggest stick they could find to beat Galileo with. And the biggest stick they could find to beat Galileo with was the church. And so they got the church to beat Galileo. But this, this, this was not... A, the origin of that whole controversy was not Galileo against the church. It was Galileo against the scientific consensus. Anytime anybody says something against the scientific consensus, the scientific consensus gets together and beats that guy to death. You mean like global warming? Anything, anything, anything. Um, and so um, I, I just want everybody to keep that in mind, that in 1925, to go against this idea was to be going against the science. And that idea of not being allowed to go against the science goes back centuries before that. Centuries before that. Um, and when the science is something like this, that's based not really on science, but based on a worldview, um, 
that can be that can cause real problems. Real problems. Uh, yes. Yeah. So yeah. So it, it gets absorbed into people's thinking, and even if somewhere down the line, every, everybody's turn uh, comes to the point where they acknowledge, oh no, we can't really believe that. Um, it, it still has been absorbed into the bloodstream of the culture, um, and causes problems. Really causes problems. Even even once the science catches up. And it has. And Daniel's absolutely right. There's, there is no scientist who actually believes this today. I, I, I mean, there may be one or two, but, but it, you, know, you, you know what I'm saying. Nobody, nobody would write a science book that said this today. No one, no one would write a science book that said this. So we've come to the point where we, we can look back and say, no, that wasn't right. But what I'm saying is, this is consistent with the evolutionary view. It's consistent with it. Um, nobody believes that today. Daniel's absolutely right. And I, I don't want to try to say that scientists today believe this. They don't. Scientists do not believe this today. Nobody does. The but they, they did once. Right? They, they did once, and I'll show you to next week. We run out of time. But next week I'll show you some other um, examples. I'll show you that we, we actually put a man in the Bronx Zoo here in the United States of America in the 20th century because of this. We put him in the, in, the, in the ape cage in the zoo in New York City. I'll show you. The guy's name's Oda Benga. I'll show you a whole article and stuff about him. Um, in the 20th century, in the United States of America, we had a man in the monkey cage in a zoo because of this. Um, okay, uh, we've run out of time. Uh, let, me, uh, let me close us in prayer.